Schwab Trading is now powered by Ameritrade to give you a new, elevated trading experience tailor-made for trader minds. Go deeper with Thinkorswim, the powerful, award-winning trading platforms now at Schwab. Unlock support from the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders who live and breathe trading like you do. And sharpen your skills with an expanding library of online education crafted just for traders. All designed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bloomberg Audio Studios. Podcasts, radio, news. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube. Even with today's 37% increase in Lyft, the stock still has a market cap, you know, $6-7 billion, where if I, Uber's got, a, you know, multiples of that. It yeah, just, huge. It skyrocket and such a huge divergence. So uh, let's break down both of those numbers. We can do that with Mandeep Singh. He follows some of the uh, technical sectors of this Pretty market. Much follows every Pretty much everything in tech, of, yes. yeah. So uh, he's a tech analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. So let's start with Lyft. Um, I Who's took getting a, fired? I took a Lyft home last <laughs> night because, why? Because it was cheaper than Uber. By how much? By like 20%. Really? Yeah, and that's typical. One one or the other. Not I just arbitraged the two. Matt Miller does not do that. I arbitraged the two. I thought everybody did that. So anyway, what happened to Lyft with their earnings last night? Well, last night was uh, bizarre because, <laughs> uh, you know, you don't often see that in press releases. Never. You know, Somebody better of... lose a job there, is Alex. Totally. <laughs> but, you know, at the end of the day, it was, I, I think, just a mistake that happened. It wasn't intentional in any way. And uh, the stock move was pronounced because uh, of, you know, the short interest and uh, the fact that, uh, obviously, people were uh, not very optimistic going into the print. And... Uh, Look, I, I think in, in the case of Lyft, uh, not much has changed in terms of execution. They're still uh, kind of a distant number two. And yep. uh, you talked about taking a Lyft, but there are certain zip codes where they are able to meet the ETAs that Uber has. But in other zip codes, they have no supply. So right. even if you mm -hmm. want to take a Lyft, there is no availability. All right, but my dude last night, like most markets I go to, He's got an Uber sticker and he's got a Lyft sticker and he's got both apps open. Wait, really? And they, they all drive for yeah, each other. Yeah, they, they, there oh, is a huge that. amount of overlap. Yeah. And so literally, so it's, it's, UV, just, apparently. it's just, here's my reading. I mean, you're the yeah. expert. It's just Uber algorithm, Lyft algorithm, they're different. They're going to give you different prices and things like that. But 
It was 20% yeah, but, but anyway. from a driver perspective, what Lyft is doing is they are paying out more to lure drivers. Okay. So if, if it was a $10 ride, the driver is getting $7 or $8 from Lyft, whereas from Uber, they're getting $6. Ah. It's just an example. Yes. Ah. So that's where you know the take rate matters, what yep. these companies keep versus what the driver is getting. And that's the, uh, I think, tactic Lyft is using to really pay more to the driver to bring on more supply. So then how does that then play out? So at some point they get enough supply that then they can sort of make more money per ride and increase the shares. When does that moment happen? I mean, scale is the only mode you can have in this business, scale and operating efficiency. And so what Uber has done is obviously they have the scale. Yep. They are six times bigger than uh, Lyft in, term, in just the mobility segment. And like think of the gross margin. The reason why this is a 60% gross margin business is because insurance costs is pretty high for ride sharing. So how do you bring down insurance costs? Through scale. And that's what Uber has because it does, you know, six times more rides than uh, uh, Lyft. And, and in the case of Lyft, if they don't maintain the supply, then they're just going to keep losing share, which is what was happening. So they have to compete mm. on price. The only way they can maintain their share is they, if they offer a lower price, as they did with Paul last yeah, night. So uh, that's that's the tactic, and uh, I don't that, think it's going to be. Is that a long-term model? To yeah. You? Well, so think of what happened with food delivery. There were so many players. Now you are down to two or three, okay. uh, you know, remaining. It's Uber, Which, DoorDash. Which I still will not pay for for my youngest in college. I have a hard time paying for. It. I'm not going to no, pay it ten is. bucks. We've established like, that yeah. firmly. I support this. Yeah. So uh, there will be consolidation, but if Uber is announcing a seven billion dollar buyback, you know they're not buying Instacart now. So yeah. that's or uh, nor they are buying Lyft. Okay, talk about that uh, that that buyback. Yeah. What does that tell us? Like when you buy back stock, isn't that because you're no longer a growth company? Like is that the thing? Yes, I, I think there is that element. And mm. also they're going to be prudent in terms of uh, returning cash to the shareholders. So. Remember, they acquired the freight business. That is a big drag on profitability. Uber didn't build freight business organically. They bought a company. That didn't work out well. They bought Postmates for food delivery. That didn't work out well. So their track record with acquisitions isn't great. And so now they are saying, is we are going to generate about seven to $8 billion in free cash flow? Well, guess what? We are using seven billion out of that for uh, buying back our stock. I mean, uh, obviously it's gonna be over a period of time, not in the next 12 months, but uh, I, I think that's good sound capital allocation strategy. And look, this company is generating, the mobility side is very healthy. They've got, uh, you know, mid 20% EBITDA margins compared that to Lyft, which what got people excited is they could get to 20% EBITDA margins. Well, not so fast. Mm -hmm. I, I guess that was a typo. So, yeah. I, I see. Yeah. <laughs> All right. How about the Uber Eats business? Again, I don't support this. I mean, I know it's a great, people love it, but not on my credit card. Um, so talk about the, the Eats business. This is just to drive frequency. Okay. Just so that Paul has more transactions with Uber. This is just Uber. advertising then, basically. Exactly. And, and the only profit they're going to generate right now is through advertising. So the good thing working out for Uber is they have a memberships business. So that's your recurring subscription. You're going to buy an Uber membership that works for both mobility and delivery. And also they're going to show ads. So ads is a billion dollar run rate business now, primarily oh. driven by delivery. And it's almost 90% gross margin. Yep. So that's what's going to drive the delivery profitability. But on a transaction basis, this is zero. So this is sort of like 
Amazon Prime Video. Like it's just basically sell more subscriptions of Amazon Prime, up the price a little bit, and then you get more viewers who are just into it, and then they buy more stuff on Amazon. It's kind I of mean, the same bundling idea. is the way. So they like Uber uh, talked about this concept of being a super app almost three, four years ago. And, and they have been working towards it. Now they have integrated taxi. Remember when Uber came to the scene, they were supposed to, or they actually disrupted taxis. Yep. Now they mm -hmm. have onboarded taxis on the platform mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. boost supply. Ah. And taxis is about 5% of their business. So clearly, you know, you come a full circle yep. where you have integrated taxis and their thing is, we'll bring everything related to transportation on one app. And huh. you can find any and everything this you need. This guy, Darek Shahi, I mean, he's done an amazing job turning that company around. Minus the acquisitions. Minus I think the acquisitions. If They're it just wasn't, bad at buying stuff. Uh, and that's what he did at Expedia. Expedia yes. was built around acquisitions. There, yep. I think acquisitions worked out probably better than uh, they did in Uber. But uh, clearly acquisitions wasn't. And uh, so one of the potential acquisitions that was out there was Instacart to ramp up their Uber Eats. But you're now saying the stock buyback signals that oh, unlikely yeah. to do that. That's completely out of question. I mean, the mm -hmm. uh, question is, can DoorDash buy something given, like the reason why Lyft's stock moved this much is because the valuation is like one times yes. EV2 sales. Yep. Compare that to DoorDash five times EV2 sales or Airbnb 10 times EV2 sales. So clearly uh, a lot of the growth prospects are reflected in the uh, Lyft's valuation. Yeah, the Airbnb, we'll do that next time. I'm just, uh, I don't know, I'm just not comfortable with that concept. Um, but I, I know a ton of people are around the world and they love it. So we'll get to that next like time. Staying or renting out your renting out your house or staying in someone else's house? Both, both. Okay. You know, I don't know, but it, it, I don't know. My, it's my, really my, not that weird. Yeah, going into somebody else's house. No, because it's more like an investment property a lot of the time. All right, Mandeep Singh, senior tech analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, we appreciate you <laughs> stopping by. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. I want to dig a little deeper into the small cap world because the Russell 2000 is up 1.6%. Now, the narrative if you just rewind to Monday, was that we were broadening out this rally in the S&P, that it wasn't just big tech. We were finally seeing small caps get a little bit of a bid. Well, let's talk to Brian Smoluk. He's principal and portfolio manager of the Hood River Small Cap Growth Fund. He joins us from Palm Beach, Florida, much Please. to Paul's pain Jesus. as he looks at the palm trees in the background. Hey, Brian. <laughs> Killing me. Um, do you buy hey, small caps you? here? Like, are they actually going to finally make a good comeback? I think so. The CPI print yesterday clearly didn't help things near term, given the Fed was a little bit too aggressive in December when they talked about aggressive cuts this year. But I think once the CPI does settle down to a level that people are comfortable with where the Fed's going to cut, it's a matter of when, not if, then small caps will uh, outperform. You'll, you see that when people want to put on risk. Small cap, particularly small cap growth, tends to put on a really big move. And then in Q4 last year, when that happened, the, the, the space really ripped. And it's been a fairly protracted period of big underperformance for the last several years. So the setup is good given valuations, earnings revisions are, are trending positive. Uh, spreads, which are a great leading indicator for, for small cap stocks, have tightened significantly to just a little over 100 basis points. So it, uh, the odds are highly in the, in the space's favor for it to outperform over the next 12 months. 
Hey, Brian, am I going to get a, a valuation break if I go down into smaller mid-mid-cap territory relative to the S&P 500? Yeah, so if you look at small cap growth versus the S&P, it usually trades at a premium. Right now, it's trading around 18 times, 2025 uh, earnings versus the S&P at 20 times. So you do get a discount there. And that's part of what I was saying why the setup is good, because you get a, a relative valuation break. Usually, the growth is faster in small cap names. I wouldn't expect this uh, upcoming cycle to be any different. Mm -hmm. So that's why you'll get probably some multiple expansion and positive range revisions, which should lead to high performance over the next 12 months. Hey, Brian, would you have made a different argument six months ago? Because small caps did have a moment last year, and that moment was short-lived. Is the argument different now? I would say it's honestly pretty similar. Um, you know, we're, we're bottoms up stock pickers trying to find companies with a dislocation of fundamentals versus valuation. It's been a constructive setup, and uh, six months ago, it actually was good when you look into Q4 and, and small cap and putting a, putting a move on to being up around 19% for the year last year. Uh, so it was solid, um, but it has been a waiting game for small cap, and you need rates to cooperate with, with spreads for the sector to work. Fortress Aviation, FTAI is the ticker. What's the call there, Brian? We like the stock. It's one of our bigger positions. Uh, it's been really huge over the last 18 months. We think there's still some significant legs uh, left in the story for it to really work. Um, it trades at around 20 times earnings. They have a new module repair business for engines that's growing around 100%. And we think there's upside in that area, particularly when you look at all the news in the supply chain and, and airlines across the world really need to optimize how well their current engines work, given that they can't get new engines or new planes when Boeing's having all these problems. Meanwhile, the asset value on their current uh, their their current engines has been moving up because of the supply de demand imbalance created by the fact that new planes really can't make it out the door, and you have rising demand around the world continuing uh, for 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 passenger travel. Um, you also have Celsius, which is, it's, it's, it's like a Red Bull energy drink, right? I know it's different, but it it's the same kind of yeah. idea. Um, you like this company, how come? Yeah, we've owned it for a while. Uh, it's a secular market share gainer, we think in the category. It's gone from around 2% share to 10% share. We think really? they can reasonably get to 20% share. They have a, a, a partnership with Pepsi that's ramped up over the last 12 months. Pepsi's the largest distributor uh, in, in the world. And uh, fortuitously, they left Budweiser, which obviously was, wasn't great uh, with all the Bud Light issues that they were having. And we think the streets at about 40%, they could easily grow 50 uh, this year. And the stocks just can around 13% share. And as I said earlier, we think they can get to 20. And have you ever had one of those energy drinks? No. I'm scared of them. Yeah, Celsius is a little bit healthier. It's all natural ingredients. You still get the boost from caffeine. It's 200 milligrams of caffeine. So yeah, I definitely wouldn't take it before you go to bed, but it tastes better. It's healthier than some of the other drinks out there. Yeah, I, I don't know. Hey, Brian, what's a, what's a, how do you define kind of like the market cap? Like what's a small cap? What's a mid cap for you? And what happens when they maybe yeah. grow out of those mm -hmm. levels? Yeah. So, so the last, uh, the last six months has been uh, abnormal for the sector in that there's been a huge bifurcation. So within the Russell 2000 growth, for example, Supermicro is actually in the benchmark and it's over a 30 billion market cap. So normally I would say the range is between 
call it 100 million up to six or seven billion, but it has expanded over time. The sweet spot really is in that two to five billion dollar range. And those stocks tend to be a little bit more inefficient. And we don't typically sell a stock when it gets too big. It's really when we think it's efficiently priced based on the fundamentals or we think something bad's going to happen. We'll, we'll so, step aside. And it's a leading question because we're talking about you manage a, a small cap growth fund. But growth versus value in the Russell, is it the same kind of thing as what we see in the general market? Growth, tech, everything else, value. Well, in small cap growth, you do have a larger percentage of software companies, semiconductor companies, uh, biotech, and a little bit less financials, and then some of the higher growth consumers. But small cap growth and small cap value are relatively highly correlated, but in different areas, there can be big dispersions. Like in 2020, you saw growth massively outperform value, and then it completely inverted the prior year. We frankly try to be agnostic and try to find companies that are growing reasonably quickly, call it 15%, but are inefficiently priced. So we kind of thread the needle there. There's a good uh, article in the Bloomberg Terminal today. Florida boom cools an area where home insurance costs tripled. Hurricane Ian worsened already rising homeowners rates, and they call that like Naples, Sarasota, Cape Coral. I noticed you guys own some exposure here. HCI Group is a homeowners insurance company yep. based in Florida. Uh-oh. Yes. What's, what's that about? <laughs> yeah, so it's been a great stock because of the dislocation in this particular geography and what's happened is the lawyers had the upper hand not a big surprise for an extended <laughs> period here a lot of insurers pulled out because of that because they were having massive losses the state legislature came in made it so that it was more reasonable and favorable to insurers hci was set up well to write new premiums profitably as well as take over existing premiums from the state entity which is called citizens which allowed them to dramatically outperform expectations and earnings growth is significant. So it's trading 11 times earnings. We actually think there's upside to that number. And they're just set up well because the supply demand in the area. And as you know, the area is really growing. So you have a lot of people moving here. So demand is strong. As Paul talks about all the time. Mm -hmm. You do want to move yep. there, don't you? No. No, he negative. doesn't. That's a hard no. Okay, it's a hard no, but he does get jealous of the palm trees. Yes. Um, what I find yes. interesting, though, when you talk about insurers is that, you know, Florida is going to get hit with storm after storm, and it is a bit worse now. And I just wonder how the risk premium got to bake into these stocks. So weather is a big issue, uh, obviously, during hurricane season. Um, HCI has been here forever, and they've done a good job pricing for that risk. So... You just got to assume over an extended period of time that when you take your lumps, you're going to more than make up for it based on pricing. And as you noted from that article, pricing is up huge. And there are a lot of different reasons for that. And in condos, for example, there was that condo that went down in, in, in Miami and that jacked up premiums oh, all over the area. And, uh, and insurance companies were able to capitalize because now condos realize they just had to become conforming yep. uh, with state code. So. So to me, hurricanes are a manageable risk here. Um, there's actually been less direct hurricane impacts on Southeast Florida than in the, up in the Northeast where you guys are. Yeah. So, but you do have a fair amount happening, happening in the Gulf, but there's less population in Florida in the Gulf than on the Southeast side. All right, Brian, thank you so much for joining us. As always, Brian Smolik, he's a principal and portfolio manager of the Hood River Small Cap Growth Fund, not in Bend, Oregon, but in Palm Beach Gardens, Florida. 
Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, unlocking the power of Thinkorswim, the award-winning trading platforms loaded with features that let you dive deeper into the market. Visualize your trades in a new light on Thinkorswim Desktop with robust charting and analysis tools, all while you uncover new opportunities with up-to-the-minute market news and insights. Thinkorswim is available on desktop, web, and mobile to meet you where you are. It's built by the trading obsessed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube. I want to know what's up with Kraft. So that stock is moving a whopping 6%. It's down 6%. Organic sales decline wasn't so great. It was a lackluster end to the year, and that's really dragging on sales. So what's up with that? Let's go to Jen Bartashis. Uh, she is Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Analyst, Retail Staples and Packaged Foods. Um, Jen, what was just so bad about Kraft? Well, the, the big surprise for Kraft was that volume uh, was down, which was not a surprise, but it was down more than prices rose. Um, and that really put pressure on the ability to generate sales growth. Um, and so uh, organic sales were negative for the first time uh, since 2020. Um, and there's some, although there's some momentum in the business, uh, it's got people concerned. So Jen, as I understand the packaged food business from reading your research and talking to you, you know, I guess post-pandemic volumes are down, but then they, they've been able to make up for it by raising prices more. So is that game kind well, of played out now? Yeah, it, it, it basically, a lot of these companies have run out of their pricing power. And what that means is, you know, they were able to raise prices because their input costs were higher, whether it was ingredients or transportation or packaging. But as inflation is coming down, they've, they're losing the ability to pass through additional uh, price increases, which means that if you want to have top line growth or organic sales growth, you have to have positive volume growth. Um, because you're not getting it from just higher price anymore. Um, and the problem Kraft Heinz has right now is that volume is still down, price is lower than it's been, um, and they're not seeing that bounce back in volume that typically lower pricing would encourage. Okay, so a couple things to focus on. Let's go to the product side then, because you mentioned that a few times. So volumes are down. It doesn't seem like that's just a pricing power thing. Do they not have the right products right now? 
Well, I think their their portfolio is actually pretty good. It's just that the consumer is not buying as much as they were before. So if you think back to pre-pandemic, people had huge pantries and everything was stocked. They had lots of boxed goods in there. Um, and now people are still a little bit more conservative and buying more on a need basis uh, rather than a stockpiling basis. And so um, until people start to bulk up those pantries again, um, it's it's hard to entice them to buy more than what they just need for this week. So as I look at the uh, analyst forecast, Jen, I kind of see the one and a half to two to two and a half percent revenue growth in the next several years. That really is the story for most of these consumer packaged goods companies, isn't it? It really is, um, especially for companies where the bulk of their portfolio are what you would call center of the store items. Um, so that's the canned items, the boxed items, um, you know. The, that, that type of outlook for top line growth is is pretty much in line with where you would expect normal inflation rates to be. Um, and so that in and of itself is, is probably a reasonable expectation for where these where these companies can go over the next few years. Do you think that prices then will come down or do you think that they stay sticky? Um, prices will slowly come down. Um, retailers are looking to pass through cost savings to their customers. So there will be higher pressure on packaged food companies to lower prices as well. Um, and as their input costs or their packaging, packaging costs come down, it's harder for them to justify holding prices at a higher level um, and not passing through some of those savings. So while prices may never come back down to where they were pre-pandemic, they should come down a little bit from where they were in terms of peak pricing in the last 18 a months. A little bit. I, know. I don't know if we like yeah. a little bit. No, we don't. And, yeah. that's, and that's what- That's the problem. That's a problem. That's a problem for a lot of people. At the, and it's a problem for the politicians who are saying, Inflation is still a bad story here. So, all right. So, Jen, with these names like Kraft Heinz and General Mills and Kellogg's, I got a you know low single-digit revenue growth. I'm looking. I got dividend yields for Kraft Heinz about 4.7 percent. I mean, what am I owning this thing for? Am I owning it for single-digit kind of maybe stock price return plus some dividend yield, and that's and that's my game? Um, it, that's 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 probably the value play at the moment, right? Meaning um, you've got steady, kind of slow and steady growth. You've got a, a, a reasonable dividend. Um, they do do um, sh uh, share buybacks, you know, so there's some some shareholder benefit there. Um, and, you know, as consumers start to pick up their spending, then we may see a better outlook for these companies as well. Who does Kraft, this is a really dumb question, who does Kraft compete with? Like the Coke and Pepsi, I know that Pepsi was all like snacks, 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 but they had the soft drink business. Who's like a straight up craft competitor? Um, someone like Conagra um, would uh, be, a, okay. a, you know, or Campbell Soup. Um, you know, those would be kind of those center type store companies uh, that would compete most directly with the Kraft Heinz. Hey, Jen, I look at the at the holders list here and I, I forgot about this. Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett, uh, by far the biggest shareholder uh, of this company with about 26, 27 percent ownership. What, what, what has Berkshire Hathaway publicly said about this investment? How long have they owned it? What do they say about their stake here? Well, they've been involved for a very, very long time. Okay. Um, uh, haven't made a lot of uh, public comments lately, um, but when uh, Kraft Heinz began its transformation plan, which was now a little over three years ago, um, Berkshire Hathaway was very pro, um, you know, they were very positive on that transformation story. Um, and to be fair, Kraft Heinz has executed on that transformation plan and generally ahead of schedule um, when it comes to cost savings initiatives, um, streamlining things, um, rebalancing their portfolio. 
Um, so they really have been sticking to that plan and delivering ahead of schedule. Um, it's just that it's a multi-year process. Right. And like, it's a tough time and I get it. And there's inflation and then there's the demand. Do you think that the stock move, I mean, I'm just looking at the chart here. Is it overdone? Um, well, part of it, you know, part of it is the concern um, about the volume. Um, and, and, and when they gave their guidance for 2024, the company actually said that they think volume is going to shift to positive growth in the second half of the year. Um, that seems like it might be overly optimistic and is probably part of what's contributing to that stock decline today. So, Jen, in your coverage area, um, you know, you got the staples, the packaged food companies. What's the kind of the, the best idea? What do you talk to clients about most often? Well, right now, um, we're talking to people about, you know, who is it that has taken the least amount of price increases over the last, say, 18 months, and where are volumes holding up? Because to be successful over 2024 and into 2025, it really is that question of how are you going to actually drive overall growth and profitability? Um, and so the companies that have been more conservative and been more prudent in that approach um, are the ones who are positioned right now to maybe benefit from that. So you, you know, have an, benefit an, from an, those actions. Like yeah, what's what's a representative name there? Uh, so a good example there would be Mondelez, um, where they Another took a lot company. less price um, than than, and actually the spinoff from Kraft Heinz. Oh, <laughs> um, that. yeah. Um, but they've been very, they've been a little bit more prudent in terms of um, their price increases. And what we've also seen is that their volume has held up better. Uh, Hershey is another one uh, where their volumes have held up. And part of that is that people love their chocolate. Um, <laughs> That's true. You know, um, I, 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 I don't care about those flowers. Are a of examples. But I'll definitely so take we're, we're learning a lot about, uh, uh, Jen, we're learning a lot about Alex and her Valentine's Day preferences. So flowers, no, but chocolate. Well, I don't want anything. I think you don't it's want stupid. Anything. But it's stupid. If one She's was trying to, to get portray me herself as like this simple girl, <laughs> no demands. <laughs> I don't buy it for a minute. Simple girl? What? No. <laughs> Do I like Valentine's? No, it's dumb. But will I eat chocolate? Absolutely, <laughs> as long as it's high-end dark chocolate. Um, hey, Jen, what, what what's something you really don't like right now? Like, what's sort of a negative trend? Because I'm also trying to understand for some of these names, the normalization that we've seen, sort of backtrack the last four years and erase that. And that's where we have to kind of pick up and go from there. Well, I think one of the I think one of the things that is is an, an issue for the industry is that everyone still believes that they can optimize their portfolio and that they're going to find a buyer for the products and the product lines that they don't want hmm. at a good multiple. Um, and, and the, you know, at the end of the day, there aren't a lot of buyers out there for, you know, uh, categories that are slow or slow growth or declining. Um, and so there's maybe a little bit of a mismatch in terms of the belief that they can streamline their portfolio, get up, get up, you know, all the value that they think they deserve out of it. Um, and yet I don't see a whole, you know, a whole suite of buyers lining up to, to, to look at those products. Hershey. This company went public in 1927. Oh boy. They did one follow-on offering. Mm -hmm. And then for about a period of about 12 months in 1993 or four, we pitched them hard on mm -hmm. doing another follow-on. We actually had a good analyst on, on the name and the company like this. We went to Hershey probably six or seven times in, in the space of a year, pitching a follow-on, pitching a follow-on, nothing. Didn't get paid, but uh, got the Hershey and got a lot of Hershey chocolate. There's um, that. There's that, so, um, so Jen, what does a company like Hershey do? It's one of those things. I know they've gotten bigger through some acquisitions, but they're still relatively a, a small player relative to some of the other big names. But is their brand so good that they can kind of 
remain independent? Yeah, I, I believe that the Hershey brand is really iconic. And if you think about some of their uh, some of their biggest um, chocolate lines, um, there really aren't a lot of um, uh, mass targeted competitors out there. So, you know, people may prefer the higher end, Alex, um, you know, but, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but when it comes to kind of that mass market, um, it's hard for an, an external brand to come in and get the kind of penetration that Hershey has. Um, and in addition, Hershey has really done a good job of diversifying into the broader snacking. Um, so they own, you know, they own popcorn brand, they own, mm. um, you know, pretzel brand. So, you know, they've, they've done a good job of diversifying and that'll help um, you know, that'll help them with their long-term growth as well. Really interesting. I'm surprised that John Tucker didn't have some weird factoid about Hershey, Pennsylvania. Well, they have the Hershey school and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, but I mean, that. like weird off the beaten track, like you know, here's suspect, where the cemetery was I don't have any fun facts about Hershey, but I suspect it's out in that region of the world because there are lots of farms and milk cows that <laughs> give milk and stuff. Like I could have told you that. All right. All hey, right. Jen, well, we, <laughs> we really appreciate it. It's so great to catch up with you. Such wonderful analysis. Jen Bartashis, uh, Consumer Staples, Bloomberg Intelligence, Senior Industry Analyst. And she covers everything, everything, everything yep. food related, which is just yep. such an interesting business. And what I learned from business. her years ago, mm. which still shocks me to this day, is the number one supermarket chain in the United States is Amazon. What? No. I mean, Walmart. I'm sorry. Walmart. Sorry. Oh, okay. Walmart. Okay. That Walmart. makes more sense. Yeah, sorry. Walmart. Right. And right. I forgot about that. But when you do go in there, they're just massive square yeah. footage. For, it's huge. Yeah. I mean, isn't that where they make the majority of their money? Or I think volume, that, no, I, I guess I, think it I drives, should say? I think it drives traffic, and they and they, drives, and yeah. they make it on it. Because I think, you know, supermarkets, I think the margins are really, 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 really low. So you make it up on volume, and you bring them into the store, and they buy other stuff. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Okay, let's get to the markets here. The S&P is up four-tenths of one percent. You know, I, I kind of felt like this was going to happen yesterday when we had that big sell-off, particularly as we closed off the lows. But the question is, how sustainable is this sort of buy-the-dip narrative? So let's ask Nancy Davis, founder and CEO of Quadratic Capital Management. She joins us now from Greenwich, Connecticut. Nancy, how do I understand the price action right now on the main index? Well, Alex, I think you said it well. It's a little confusing. I mean, it's uh, it's basically good data yesterday. We had a stronger inflation, less Fed hike or Fed cuts, and that's what's kind of fueling the market. The market's on hope right now that the Fed is going to ease rates and save everything from being overly tight. So, you know, I'm looking at the bond market here because Boy, in 2022, the bond market just got crushed. There's no place left to hide. The 60-40 portfolio did nothing for you. A little bit of a positive performance in last year, thanks goodness to November and December. But here we are starting off the year again in the red for fixed income. What is, where, what do we do on the fixed income space, Nancy? Well, it's tricky because the U.S. yield curve is so incredibly inverted. So what that means is that longer dated interest rates are anticipating the Fed will aggressively cut rates and everybody in the bond market is kind of holding out their hands saying, OK, cut now. And the market being inverted, you're getting paid less yield to take more duration risk. And so the market has been rushing into credit, private credit, public credit. 
So credit spreads are incredibly tight right along with their, you know, corporate cousin equities. So those financial assets that are at all time highs. And then if you look at the, you know, treasury market, you can buy a one month T-bill and get paid 5.4 percent or you can lend money to the U.S. Treasury for 10 years and get over a percent less. So it's a really uh, crazy environment because the yield curve is not normally this inverted for this long. And it's really, I think, a message to bond investors that you're not being paid to take duration risks. So it's funny you mentioned that because a week ago, the conversation was, okay, my three-month T-bill was up. What do I do with the money? Do I do I go into equities now? Do I do something else? And now it's like, woof, nope, got to stay, got to stay, because that uh, the money market funds are just really too attractive. Um, how do you then navigate an environment where we're going to get three cuts, maybe, for normalization rather than something more dramatic? I mean, I think most people do have equities in their portfolio, and the equity market is really hanging on to this premise that the Fed is going to cut rates. So I think it's reasonable to have some short-term treasuries, and I don't think you're really getting paid for the risk to take credit risk, because it's similar, you know, if you think about owning a corporate bond and owning a corporate stock, it's a similar corporate beta, and corporates are really expensive right now. So I think it makes more sense to just have treasury exposure and not add that credit risk into your bond portfolio because you already have it on the equity side. Schwab Trading is now powered by Ameritrade to give you a new elevated trading experience tailor-made for trader minds. Go deeper with Thinkorswim, the powerful award-winning trading platforms now at Schwab. Unlock support from the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders who live and breathe trading like you do. And sharpen your skills with an expanding library of online education crafted just for traders. All designed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. The Bloomberg Sustainable Business Summit returns to London on April 25th for a solution-driven look at the sustainable business and finance landscape. Looking at the latest trends in ESG regulations, supply chain innovation and transition finance. Speakers include leaders from CDP, Emirates Environment Group, TNFD, C-Trace, COA and more. Summit advisors include City and Schneider Electric. Visit BloombergLive.com slash SBS 2024 to learn more. You know, I was surprised last year when we did get some decent performance out of fixed income that high yield was the real outperformer. And I would have thought with all the discussion of, you know, everybody talking about a recession right around the corner that you wouldn't want to take that level of risk. What happened in the high yield space? And I assume just by your previous comment that you're not being enticed by the high yield space this year. Yeah, I think high yield, investment grade, pretty much anything with a credit spread, what you want is credit spreads tighter if you own bonds with credit risk. And credit spreads are near, you know, their 10th percentile of all time tightness. So, you know, especially I think I caution people, it's not just high yield, it's also short dated. A lot of people have been going into short duration funds. And if you look at your short duration funds that take credit risk, you know, IG credit spreads are around 30 basis points for the, the three-year point. It's even tighter when you go closer in. And there you need a company to amend or extend, right? They either have to pay back the loan or they have to term it out. So it's a really, you know, it can only go to zero, right? So there's very little, you know, you're taking a lot of risk and not getting a ton of return. And so going back to those T-bills, like, yeah, maybe maybe the Fed is going to cut rates, but then you should be okay on your equity side of the portfolio. And if they don't cut rates, you don't have that reinvestment risk. So I don't, I don't think T-bills 
they're they're boring and they're not super <laughs> exciting, but I don't think they're bad. <laughs> yeah. Um, you also mentioned here in your notes uh, the fiscal situation and and watching the deficit. I I feel like yes, except no one seems to care. So like, <laughs> what do you do with that? <laughs> yeah, no, Alex, you're exactly right. Nobody cares. Um, but I think it, that's also the time when nobody's talking about something. It's important to be mindful of it because usually that risk is not priced. Um, you know, the the Treasury Department does have to refinance a tremendous amount of debt. We have a ton of fiscal spending. We have an election year. There's really even no election premium priced into the volatility markets. I mean, talk about pulling my hair out. I want to grab people and be like, what's wrong with you? Do you realize what's around the corner and what we're going to be facing? So I think that's the time that investors, you know, in all markets, you want to buy things that are low and sell things that are high. And there's certain things in the fixed income markets that are really inexpensively priced. And then there's you know, 90% of the market that's really expensive. So you want to kind of avoid the expensive stuff and buy the, the cheaply priced things, in my opinion. So what is the Fed going to do this year? I guess, obviously, the March cut is off the table. I think people are now really debating May and maybe even suggesting June might be the, the first, might be the launching point. What do you think? I think it's really hard to predict what policymakers are going to do. And then it's even harder to predict what markets are going to do in response to that policy, because it's all related to expectations, right? You know, if we if we rewind before the Fed started hiking rates and the dot plots started to come out higher, I don't think any economist out there would have said, OK, the Fed's going to hike to five. 25 in about a 12 month window. I think nobody was talking about that. And now everybody is talking about rate cuts. It's just a question of how many, how quickly, and when is it going to happen? I think we also have to be mindful of the Silicon Valley swap lines. So the the BTSP program is expiring in March. That's put a ton of liquidity out there in the system. That's going to be coming out. So I think there are a lot of things out there that are catalysts to make markets more normal in fixed income. I think having a an upward sloping yield curve, you know, that's not some kind of tail event, right? That would just be normal. Like in normal environments, when you lend somebody money longer, whether it's a sovereign or a municipality or a corporate, you typically get paid more interest to lend longer, right? Because it's more risk. Right now, we're not seeing that. So I think there are a lot of ways to kind of play for a more normal market. And it doesn't necessarily have to be dependent on, you know, the Fed just cutting rates, because mm -hmm. I think the longer the Fed pushes off the rate cuts, the more the economy, especially all the corporates out there that have debt will have to refinance. So it could potentially be higher for longer means more cuts faster mm -hmm. later because the economy is really slowing. So I think yeah. it's tricky then. All right, Nancy, we appreciate it. Nancy Davis, founder and CEO of Quadratic Capital Management, uh, talking about uh, fixed income. And then also you layer in the election timetable oh uh, and the idea that the closer you get to the election, then the more you cut, the more it looks political. And that kind of changes the framework too a little bit. Yeah. So I think if you start, maybe that takes some of the political risk out of you start Potentially. early. So we'll see how it plays out. This is the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast, available on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live each weekday, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern, on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also watch us live every weekday on YouTube and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate 
Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> 